Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. That's all I got to say. How are you, buddy? Oh, I'm great. I got I got some sore feet on me today. I'm feeling a little sore-footed. Mm. Otherwise, otherwise, I'm feeling good. I've been standing all day. You know, stand-up desk. I have not been standing since I... Uh, I did make the switch, and then I stopped doing it. What? What? Well, because my tendonitis in my it made the position of I maybe you have a tip for me. The position of where my arms were for my keyboard, which you know was at my side where my arms would naturally be ninety degrees, mm-hmm. but it made just the fact that I was holding my arms like that all day and typing, it totally made my tendonitis flare up in my elbows, and it just killed me. So I had to I had to stop doing it until my elbow uh, stopped, and now it's swollen the size of Popeyes because I got five bee stings the other day. <laughs> I was just going to ask, how's your apotherapy? Uh, yeah, I'm all stung up. Are you? Is it oh, working? Yeah. Well, it's hard to say because <laughs> of the swelling. It's so swollen right now. I oh, can't. Oh, <laughs> that's the goofiest thing ever. Goofy. It is. Well, I looked, I was like, gosh, you know, why am I doing this again? That's a great I, question. It's so big. Yeah. And it's not fun. I mean, not that I was, I, I don't know what I was expecting. I don't know why I was expecting it to be something else. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't know. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Well, I feel for you. I, I sort of. Uh, I sort yeah, of have pity. Well, I sort of feel for you because you did it to yourself. So I know I recognize that it hurts, and you did ask somebody to sting you with bees, and that's kind yeah. of ridiculous. <laughs> it was. Uh, yes, 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 it was. This is uh, the next reel, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we um, we talk about movies and we spoil them heavily, so beware. Uh, you can find us on the website at thenextreel.com. You can listen to the show there. You can check out the trailers that we talk about every single week right on each uh, show episode uh, entry there, show notes, etc. You can join the conversation at facebook.com slash thenextreel. Uh, subscribe to us in iTunes. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss a single episode. But you can also find us, of course, in Stitcher Smart Radio and your RSS uh, podcast aggregator of choice. And, uh, you know, you should drop us a line at show at thenextreel.com. That's show at thenextreel.com. what I miss? Well, we are planning our 2014 right now, and we're, uh, we have a lot of series that we want to put in there. And uh, we think we've got some really exciting ones, but we are interested in what you guys have to say. So we'd love for you guys to shoot us an email or drop us a note on Facebook. Let us know what series you think would be fun for us to do in 2014. 
you can shoot us an email at show at the next reel.com. So thank you everybody for, for joining the conversation. Make sure you check, catch up on the blog there, the next reel.com slash blog. The, uh, the goodly and kindly Steve Sarmento is, um, uh, is uh, continues to put out great posts uh, as he, he, he kind of runs the blog. Now. He just kind of does it and does great stuff. Continues to, you know, make us look terrible. And they're, yeah, they're, they're great blog posts. They're I enjoy great. reading them. Me too. Um, so I think that's all, all we've got to talk about, uh, you know, for old business. Uh, I've changed my trailer. Oh. Yeah, I know. And I was, it, do you know why? I, I just rewatched your I know, it was so good. And it was a, it's a super kind of, well, I mean, I could do a bonus trailer if you would give me, if uh, please the court. Oh, oh, whoa. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> what <is> that sound? <laughs> you were like... The dirty old trailer man. Trailer. No. Okay, so it's it was there. <laughs> <laughs> the one I was gonna do was this sweet indie uh, indie job and uh, the Secret Lives of Dorks. That's the one you watched, right? That's the one I watched. I like that. It looks like a key. It looks like a good movie. It reminded me of the kinds of movies I really liked from my youth. And uh, then I changed my trailer. And it, and it also kind of has that uh, Napoleon Dynamite sort of vibe. Exactly. I, exactly. I enjoyed the trailer. It opened September 27th. I think it's uh, already streaming, though, right? Uh, are you kidding? I haven't even checked. Wait I for it. Please it. tell me that it's already streaming. I would download that right now. Uh, the Secret Lives of Door. Look at, look at me checking the internet machine. Secret... Lives of Carry the One. And there we go. Secret Lives of Dorks is. Wait for it. You know you want it. Hey, <laughs> while I'm waiting for it. Oh, see, it's already there. Secret Lives of Dorks is already streaming. Yeah, that's what I thought. You're not just making that up. I wasn't. It actually said that at the end of the trailer. <laughs> I was paying attention. No, I was I... watching. I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> dorks are in right now i this is it you can rent it already you can buy it if you want it and then it will have a limited theatrical release beginning september 27th looks uh great galen galen connell yeah i'm wondering if he's going to burst on the scene like uh, john heater did yeah exactly yeah, I'm hoping he looks. You know who he looks like? He looks like what's his name? Who uh, whose career uh, went spiraling downhill after Transformers? What's his name? What's his name? Shia. Yeah, Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. You know who's in this movie? And the, the, the there are three people in this movie that I really, uh, you, you know, I was really zeroing in on in, in the category of let me, where, let me where are they now? Let me guess. Uh huh. James Belushi. Yep. Jennifer Tilly. Loved her in Bound. And William Cat. Boom. There it is. <laughs> William Billy, greatest American hero, yep. the cat. That's right. Yeah, that's why you need to see this movie. But the other one that everybody should go check out, which is my bonus trailer. Mm -hmm. Again, hearkening back to my youth, and this is my popcorn movie, Robocop 2014. I said it. Oh, wow. Are you, you kidding me? I loved Robocop. Tell me you didn't love Robocop. I totally love RoboCop, and I am, I don't know. I don't know if I, I kind of feel like they're screwing it up, like Total Recall was screwed up. I watched the trailer, and it just made me feel icky inside. 
No, that didn't. You're misunderstanding your feelings. <laughs> I don't think you're, I am. <laughs> you're misconstruing. My, that my funny feelings, feelings. were saying, why are they putting Michael Keaton and Gary Oldman and Samuel L. Jackson in this? That I had that feeling too, but it piqued my curiosity, thinking these guys, they're not complete idiots. So, well, I I don't know them personally. I when yeah. we you know last time we played poker, it was it was not good. But I uh, I don't know it's, them. I feel like they're I I like other things, especially that Fifth Element. Man, I could watch that again and again. Well, Jose Padilla from uh, uh, <laughs> say Elite. That, say that jo- again. Jose Padilla. <sighs> he directed. That I love it good. when you talk like that. <laughs> he did Elite Squad, so I will say, yeah. I give him credit for that. Because there is a possibility that somebody who could do Elite Squad could make RoboCop work. Abby Cornish? Totally dig dig her in Sucker Punch. Here's the thing. Uh, I... I, what I like about this movie, I like that they are um, they're playing up a lot of the uh, security privacy things, their free will argument. I think they're making a much bigger issue than that. And from the clips, it really looks like they're giving the Alex Murphy that remains inside the machine a lot more character than the original RoboCop. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I don't know. You're, you're full of it. You're bagging on the original way too much, man. No, there's no bag. That holds there a is very no special place don't in my heart. Don't even go there. I <laughs> loved that movie. Stop. I will I will say they did cast Miguel Ferrer again. So that gives me a little hope. Where do you stand on RoboCop, the uh, television series that aired from 1994 to 1995? Never seen it. Richard Eden? Alex Murphy. I've never Please. seen anything except the original RoboCop. I then never you bought don't the get sequels. to talk about this. You no, have lost it's because the... I'm a purist. I think that the, the sequels and the TV series were all poppycock. Can I say that? You, <laughs> Can I use that word on our show? I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. You, as a purist. Uh, I think uh, have uh, don't have some of the same uh, cultural sort of uh, backing that I do. I, I celebrate the entire Robo catalog, <laughs> and uh, I. <laughs> so uh, you know, Rick, I, I, I don't you know. Little, you have a little cardboard RoboCop outfit that you're going to wear to the. <laughs> just saying. Night, right? I'm just saying. You try things. <laughs> uh, I'm a little upset that uh, it doesn't look like old uh, Ronnie Cox is in it. No. I sure do miss that. That's one of the best characters in the original movie. So this yeah. is all I'm saying. I love Peter Weller in as in in the suit, uh, but I'm I'm ready for uh, I'm ready to see something new. This is one that I would like to see remade. Just to keep it. Alive. I I I'm I'm going. No, here's what I'll say. I will hold judgment. Until I see it, but man, Kurtwood Smith, come on! I know, I, no, I, I mean, I know. Yeah, uh, Paul McCrane. He was the freakiest, especially when he got the toxic waste dumped on him. <laughs> that was the best. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I'm gonna pull out that movie tonight. And so watching that too. again. What a that is a movie to celebrate. Here's I you know, it's it's a minor complaint that I will say. 
I'm not sure why they're opting to make it PG-13, other than obviously they're trying to draw in crowds. But the first one celebrated its R rating all over the place with just horribleness, which made it the movie that it was. I think. Yeah, yeah, it was... Uh, well, say what you say more about what you mean by this horribleness. How do well, you define... How, Kurt, does, one, Kurt how does one Smith, define... Kurtwood Smith blowing off Murphy's hand... You know, depicted it was it yeah. was very much in your face as you watched his hand get blown off. Yeah. Just a lot of violence, a lot of blood, was, especially when they're killing or supposedly killing him. The toxic waste I already brought up when it's dumped on him. Mm-hmm. There's so many things. It's, it was a very very violent film. That is the truth. Uh, but it it was. I don't, you know, when I when I think about it, I think about when I watched. I remember being shocked by it the first time I saw it. But it was more of that. Oh my gosh, this is such an exciting thing. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, And it it wasn't like a. It it didn't strike. It it struck me as violent as the day. Like it didn't. You know what I mean? Like it didn't really. You know. Well. It but was, you're right. It, I guess I can see that. It, it celebrated its art. I, I get where you're going. And I think that was also part of the point of the yeah. film, was it was looking at the violence of yeah. this whole well, thing. Well, right, right. And right. and by making it PG-13, I just feel like maybe they are diminishing that, or going to have to diminish that a little bit. I'm curious to see it. I uh, see, I, yeah, I see I, what I, you mean. But I, I wonder if PG-13... Yeah, I, I wonder if it's not... Uh, it just feels like they're playing it safe because you think they're they've sanitized draw, it. They're trying to draw in bigger crowds. Yeah, that's my right. sense. Okay, all right. No, you're right. I like it. So, I'm still going to see it. And, I am too. Uh, no, I, you, I will. I won't not. not see it. I absolutely will. All right, good. James right. Vanderbilt, David Self, a couple people worked on the screenplay. I, you know, the exciting people involved in the project. And as I already said. Jose Padilla. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. I think you just Can took I... this to PG-13. This <laughs> I think so. Let me talk about my trailer Would now, you, you please, for the love your, of everything, your, goodness. Two trailers. My trailer this week is the inevitable defeat of Mr. and Pete. Initially, I went into this trailer thinking it was the story of you and me. I thought that too. <laughs> But lo and behold, it is not. Um, this <laughs> this looks like a great, great film. It's the story of two uh, inner city kids. Uh, the moms are gone. Um, one, I think, is just off, lost in the world of prostitution. The other is uh, taken and put in jail. And these two kids have to basically fend for themselves, trying to avoid the authorities so they don't end up um, you know, getting put into uh, foster care or something like that. I got to say, everything about this trailer just smacks with just just a powerful uh, bunch of performers giving powerful performances, especially these two kids who come into this that um, I, you know, I had never seen either of these two kids before, and they both just look amazing. The two kids uh, playing Mr. and Pete Skyland Brooks and Ethan, I don't know if it's Dizon. Mm-hmm. Dyson. Um, they both look amazing. But you also have Anthony Mackie, Jennifer Hudson, Jeffrey Wright, Jordan Sparks. It's a great cast. And then, of course, there's, I, I always hesitate saying his name, Adewale Akunoye Agbaje. Man. <laughs> Is that pretty close? Fire tonight. <laughs> fire. 
<laughs> who I absolutely loved as Mr. Echo in yeah. Lost. Yep. So, yep. so very exciting to see him in it. And very exciting to see all of these people in this cast. Jennifer Hudson, watching the trailer alone, makes me feel like it was worth it for her to have won an Oscar. Uh, the trailer just looks like she is going to do a great job in this. So, <laughs> For her to have won an Oscar for this? No, she she has won an Oscar. Well, I know, I but like, you were saying she needs a. Is, are you saying she already uh, prescriptively it, it, needs another one? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying watching her performance performance in this made me feel like that Oscar win was a little more justified. Was justified. All right, I see. Because I was like, well, I'm not sure if just singing a song really well yeah. is Oscar worthy. She did fine in that film, but this film makes me feel like, okay, maybe she can carry her own. Kind of like Marissa Tomei. Did she deserve to win for uh, My Cousin Vinny? Mm, gosh, I'm not quite sure. But since then, she's really proven herself. The thing is, this is, uh, you know, this is the uh, George Tillman Jr., right? Yes. And uh, I, you know, Soul Food, Men of Honor. I, I liked Soul Food quite a bit. They, yeah, they, uh, okay, well, <laughs> you know. I did not we're, like we're Men of friends. Honor at all. I did <laughs> not like Men of Honor at all. That's good. So we'll, we're friends about other things. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, uh, I, I just, I, I'm, it's not like I'm hot and cold on George Tillman's other stuff. I'm just mostly cold. And yet when I saw this trailer, you sent over this trailer, I had not heard of it. I had not seen that it was coming. And it absolutely, I mean, just slapped me right in the face but, uh, yeah. with just these kids, these just incredible performers. I watched the trailer four or five times right in a row because uh, you, you, these kids are just spellbinding. Yeah. Um, I am really fascinated by this film, and it, it makes me think that this, you know, you know, you get those films that filmmakers are meant to make. Yeah, yeah. And this, this, does, this seems like this smacks of that. It does. It really does. It totally feels like this is the film that uh, Tillman was supposed to put right. out. Right. So, I'm very excited about. It. I'm glad glad you brought that one up. Yeah. So uh, the inevitable inevitable defeat of Mister and Pete opens October 11th. Out. Standing. And yes. now, for the grand conclusion of the drama of the Brothers Cohen. No country for old men. I was sheriff of this county when I was 25 years old. Grandfather was a lawman. Father, too. The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. Without a bunch of money and the other party is out his product. Willin, what's in the satchel? It's full of money. I always seen this is what it come to. I previsioned it. You know how this is gonna turn out, don't you? Nope. I think you do. What's the most you ever lost? The coin toss. Call it Friendo. I'm watching this movie again. And I'm trying to envision the screenplay, right? You try and envision the screenplay. And this is before I had actually gone to, you know, download the screenplay. Yes. Uh, and I think that it's, I, I think there may have been fewer than 200 words <laughs> in this movie. Uh. <laughs> this is a film that is expertly told with images and character. Uh, just just straight up like movement it's unbelievable yeah there there are long stretches where it's just stuff happening uh joel 
Cohen actually talked about it at one point, saying, you know, this this film is really, uh, it was an interesting challenge to make because there's so much physical activity in it that was designed to basically be achieving a purpose. Um, whether it was the initial hunting scene that we have with uh, Llewellyn as he's hunting the pronghorn that leads him to the money and all of that, or if it's him later just trying to you know hide the money somewhere. It, it's so much of just watching these people do things. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm interested in your take on it as uh, you you watched again in the context of the other uh, Coens that we've been that we've been mm-hmm. watching. Um, for me, it it felt like it, it really does feel like a visual pinnacle of the dramatic films that we've covered. It is, and I think uh, to a very large extent, Roger Deakins' cinematography in this film really does feel um, like a sibling to Fargo in the sense that he was really being restrained. He was really trying to keep the images very settled. There's not a lot of, uh, I mean, there is movement, but uh, it's purposeful movement designed within the scene, whether it's, you know, Llewellyn running through the, uh, through the scrub, you know, avoiding the pursuing vehicle, things like that. But on the whole, Otherwise, there really wasn't a lot of camera movement other than like a few real slow push it, pushes in or things like that. It was very deliberately uh, designed to be kind of stepping back uh, much like it was in Fargo. And I think it, uh, it really reflects this, this darker story. And it, it puts you into a much more serious mindset unlike some of the other films like uh, I mean Barton Fink is is a more serious film it definitely has a comedic streak going on to it and it also has a very artistic twisted streak that allows for more unique camera work in that film uh, Blood Simple does have some crazier stuff as does uh, well Miller's Crossing is pretty restrained too but both of those have that very Sonnenfeld feel to them and so it definitely has a different feel than I think Roger Deakins work uh, once he's working with these guys you know I I think that the the you know in contrast with those films what this film and Fargo have in in uh, I think in spades is this idea of setting as character right I mean absolutely this idea of West Texas takes on a uh, you know as it as it did in Fargo the, the, the you know sort of Dakota winter in Fargo this uh, you know the setting of West Texas uh, plays a a really key role. Uh, in this film, and so when you say that Roger Dinkins uh, Dinkins was, rest- you know, demonstrating a, a deep restraint in his camera work, I I would say that you know that restraint is underscored by the fact that the the character of the setting is screaming to be set free every time they go wide. I mean, you it it is I think an enormous challenge not to really get frivolous with the landscape like that and uh he really did not i I think he just he just let it be and uh you know i i think that that played really nicely there was a you know there's a as you watch the kind of interviews and and the the pressers of of this film you kind of go back in time and and you hear the stories that these the filmmakers and the actors say about you know making these movies and they hear the same story over and over and one of them was that um uh uh, Ethan had gone to uh, Tommy Lee Jones and said, you know, I think we're going to shoot this whole thing in New Mexico. 
uh, even though it, you know, the, the book obviously takes place in West Texas on the on the Mexican border. And and Tommy Lee Jones' uh, response famously is, "Yeah, it'd be a mistake." <laughs> and uh, and and true to form, you know, and they, you know, Ethan's follow up as everybody kind of gets the laugh moment is, uh, you know, we went down to West Texas and we got it. You know, we yeah. understood for you know what he was talking about. There, there is something there that is, you know, irreplaceable, and um, it's uh, you know it is that same sort of celebration of setting that we get in in Fargo, and to some extent, um, you know, Blood Simple. But but really, I think that it comes to a maturity in so many ways here. Um, that sort of restraint. Well, and you know, it's it's like saying go shoot it anywhere in the southwest it's all kind of that desert but there's a huge difference between arizona or new mexico or texas or west texas or east texas they all have vastly distinct looks and i i think that tommy lee jones being from west texas actually from what i understand he grew up not far from the where the story takes place right and and so he really knew west texas he knew exactly this world and so you know he was able to kind of pinpoint that for joel in a way that joel probably didn't know because i mean his experience in west texas was not as as uh, big i mean they shot blood simple down there but other than that i don't think they had much experience there and new mexico is obviously a big draw for filmmakers because of the tax incentives that are in that state it makes it uh very um, easy to go look and shoot films there because of the discounts that you end up getting. But when a film really banks on the locale to be as key as it is in this film, um, you're right. You really want to make sure it's as authentic as possible. And, you know, your comments were interesting about the restraint with even the landscapes. And I think you're right. It's interesting that really the only time you see any landscape imagery that really struck me as um, allowing the, not just the, I guess the, the landscape always kind of has its, its vast kind of beauty, but it's, it's really just kind of the open spread that you have through most of the film. But in the opening, when Tommy Lee Jones, uh, when his character, Ed Tom, is, has his bit of narration at the beginning, that's the only time where you really get those just stunning sunrises and you get some beautiful imagery at the beginning leading uh, over his uh, opening narration before the film really gets going. And then once it gets going, then it's just it's this much more restrained vision of the landscape. Yeah, you know, particularly when we see, um, you know, moss uh, hunting. Yeah, uh, that's when we we sort of meet the hardness of of West Texas and and his relationship to it as he's just walking. Yeah, uh, you know, you get this sense of time passing as a result of how the light plays on the landscape. And you know, the the contrast I keep coming up with, and this is uh, you know, you're talking specifically about New Mexico, and and we should say, much of the film was actually shot in New Mexico, but the landscapes, the the anything with the sort of the wide stuff was all was all shot in. in Texas. Uh, you look at, uh, you know, my my new favorite, Breaking Bad. Um, there is some, you know, distinct uh, stylistic camera work in that film that, or in that that series that that sort of illustrates the frivolity that one can have when you have such brilliant skies and, um, you know, interesting um, uh, landscape. And I think what what we see in uh, Deacon's work here is just letting the landscape speak for itself, not forcing it with any, um, 
you know, with any, any camera trickery or speed up or, you know, right like that. And it really, it, it really, uh, lets you celebrate the character's interaction with it. You know, and like I, I already mentioned the walking, the long walking where we see the hardness of it, but then to celebrate that contrast when he's running from the, um, from the drug, uh, from the cartel and the, uh, at night when, you know, it's not even steady camped. I mean, it is the most yeah. sort of jarring vibration, uh, uh, that we see in that camera work as he runs down to the river, um, all the way to, you know, shooting the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it, it come, that comes as such a sort of tempo, uh, peak, uh, because everything else has been so restrained. Yeah. Yeah. He really relies on the starkness of not just the story, but of these characters to a certain extent to also tie into the starkness of this landscape and this world that they're living in. There is there's something about the the character interaction with one another, and this is another parallel I think to Fargo. Um, I, I get the sense when I watch this film that um, the characters really could be speaking another language. You know that feeling you get when you listen to music that is, uh, you know, that's in a language that you don't understand. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, the voice, the, the sort of vocal track ends up taking on this, this feeling that it's just another instrument in the band. You know, at least that's, that's what I get. Yeah. And I, I feel like I could watch this movie, uh, you know, in a, in a, dubbed in another language and get, get a very similar feel to what I get as I understand it. The way these, the characters come into the story and leave it uh, at interesting surprising times just sort of the way they come in it's more like an instrumental solo for me than than uh, uh, sort of a uh, you know than a group piece um, kind I, of like um, what was that uh, um, the Peter and the wolf <laughs> you yeah, know where right? each character kind of has their own little motif that kind of comes in and, and plays yes, for them. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what it is. And they, they, you know, there are periods where they play together and they're interacting with one another, but they're rarely on scene at the same time, on screen at the same time. They, uh, you know, you just sort of feel like they're interacting from a distance and then they go on their own journey. Yeah. Um, that's that's very much the sense I get about this this film and about the just sort of the strength of Cormac McCarthy's, um, you know, text. Well, even even to the point where some of the changes from the book, which uh, aside from kind of condensing the book a little bit, um, they they also I mean, I'm trying to think you never really have Ed Tom and Llewellyn interact. They they pretty much never interact over the course of the book or the film. Um, Likewise, I mean, Ed Tom pretty much is always behind (laughs) behind everybody. Uh, But. But in the book, you actually do have a little more interaction between Llewellyn and Shiger, um in the in the hotel when Shiger tracks him to the the Eagle Hotel. There's more interaction in that scene um, where Llewellyn actually takes Shiger hostage for a moment, and then uh, and then he runs off, and then Shiger continues chasing him and all that sort of stuff. So there's actually a scene where they're in the same room together mm-hmm. in the book. And it's interesting to me that the Coens specifically, um, and maybe smartly for the film, kind of wrote that out where, I mean, I really liked the way that they did that scene almost better than the book because the way that Llewellyn 
and Shiger interact, Llewellyn never really has the upper hand. I mean, he does get a hit in, but he's never in a place where he could potentially become the victor. And I, I found that a really interesting way that their relationship was played because they're never really in the same physical space together, unless you count the street, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, that's that's one of the things I, I find so compelling about this film is that each character's, um, you know, each each character's ultimate arc uh, is their own. They're all sort of interacting with one another and one's being chased by another. But ultimately, uh, Moss's, you know, his destiny is has been set. Uh, yeah. You get this feeling that he would drive himself into the ground whether or not Shigur was in his life. Yeah. From the moment he took the money, he's just kind of a he just is he's kind of a dummy, and uh, you get the you, you get the feeling that his sort of clumsiness is you know going to his it is really uh, masculine clumsiness like he he's he's a man's man doing really kind of dumb stuff, um, it, you know is going to get him into trouble just because he's always behind. But the thing that fascinates me about him is. He he doesn't come across that dumb. He's actually pretty intuitive as far as understanding the trouble that he's in the, min- the minute he takes that money. He understands that basically his life is over when he foolishly decides to go bring the water out there. Uh, he doesn't catch the tracker for way too long. But by going back out there, he realizes the trouble that he's just put him and his wife in pretty much for you know the rest of their lives because that he knows that he has to call her and and they have to go on the run now she's got to flee and and so he he does understand all that i think some of that comes from being a sniper back in vietnam he kind of understands the world of war but he doesn't really understand maybe you know kind of the the complexities of you know the the military planning, or I guess if you want to call gang warfare military planning. You know, he understands how to be the soldier and how to fight and how to think like a soldier, but he doesn't really know how to plan on a larger scale. And that's really what trips him up, I think. Well, I think so. I, you know, I keep going back to, the, uh, to this, this wonderful demonstration of his humanity that he went back with the water. But yeah. it's also a demonstration of his, as you say, his foolishness. And, um, you know, if, you're, if, if he is, you know, we set this expectation that he is ballsy enough to take the money in the first place, um, but doesn't have the um, uh, kind of what it takes to, to stick to that path uh, with that kind of criminal integrity. Um, the, and the and inter- that's what makes it so interesting, I think. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that decision is that's really the only thing that saves uh, him and Carla, or sh- I should say that's the only thing that prolongs their, uh, his and Carla Jean's wa- uh, lives as long as it does, is the fact that he makes that moral decision to take the water out to the dying man in the desert. Because through that and losing his truck, that's the trigger that, um, that he needed to realize that now he's being pursued. If he hadn't done that he would have been sitting at his house with that money not realizing there was a tracker next thing you know someone's going to be kicking in his door and shoot them both and it would have been over it's only because of his mistake where he loses his truck and gets chased that he realizes now he's being pursued right right which you know that's another one of those things i wanted to bring up the number of things that happen um un uh, sort of undescribed or off screen mm-hmm. uh I, I in this film i think make this one of the more challenging films to watch 
the the sort of visual uh, the the importance of of your visual attention. Yeah. Uh, to make this kind of happen, the number of people who are killed off screen that we are, uh, uh, you know, we we're left to um, presume dead. Mm-hmm. Um, they they I think treat the audience with a great deal of respect uh, in in the adaptation here, and and I I particularly like that you the scene you're describing. I mean, making that connection that you know he has made the connection that he's being chased as a result of seeing the you know that his truck has been found and that you know, they're coming to the scene of the drop. Um, you know, that's just one example. Right. Um, and, uh, of, of, you know, just how, um, you know, how much they put into, I, I love his sense of, uh, awareness when it comes, you know, only almost too late, you know, going back to finding the tracker in the hotel, he's already asleep. And this is mm-hmm. the second time this happens. The first time when he wakes up in the middle of the night and says, you know, uh, and, and goes out to take the water, he's already right. in bed. He can't sleep. And he wakes up and he says, you know, no way. Yeah. Right. That's all he says. And then he finds the tracker. You can tell that he's made that decision, but there's no explanation. There's no, uh, coddling or holding. It's, it's, um, and, and yet it, it, it works really well. Yeah. And then speaking to the, the, the challenging presentation for the audience, it is a tricky film to watch because you've got these characters that, that you're watching over the course of the film. And while largely the film is, is Sheriff Ed Tom's film, Tommy Lee Jones's character, I mean, he's the titular character. He is the one who is, uh, gives us the narration at the beginning. He's the one who leads us through to the end. It's essentially his story as he relates this whole tale to us about how this is really a no, no country for old men anymore. Um, the character that we follow for a big chunk of the film uh, through the, this briefcase full of uh, two point something, $2.4 million, whatever it is, he gets killed off screen. <laughs> right. It's very it's a very jarring moment when uh we we see Llewellyn pull into this hotel. He's he's checking in, he's talking to this lady by the pool. They're kind of having this little flirt even though he's trying to avoid anything further there. And then he kind of smiles at her. We fade out. We fade back in and Llewellyn is or, I mean uh, and Sheriff uh, Ed Tom is driving up as the Mexicans are driving away with their machine guns blasting and he pulls in only to find, you know, a couple dead Mexicans and uh, Llewellyn dead in his doorway and the woman dead in the pool. Right. Right. That, that is, that's when I had, you, you know, I remember the first time I watched it, I had to go back and watch that sequence again and again. Yeah. Yeah. I felt it's, like I was missing something and then they don't coddle to you after that either. They, no. I, I mean, they let that play out, um, you know, as a crime scene without describing anything until we see, uh, Llewellyn's wife show up, uh, and we don't even hear any. There's no, there are no lines sort of exchanged in that sequence. She just starts crying when she sees the sheriff walk up to her and take off his hat. Yeah, and that's that is really kind of it. And then from there, we just jump into. Uh, it, it's interesting the way that the end of the film just kind of moves very quickly. Right. You've got you know him looking at the body you've got this conversation with the sheriff in this county as he's talking about how times are changing and and you you keep getting this driven home he goes out and he visits his uncle and his uncle kind of drives that home and how 
there's there's no reason to stick around that you're not the you should you can't stay on just because you feel that you're the one who has to solve it that's just vanity like all these great conversations that lead him to the end of the film uh when he he talks about his two dreams and it's this really interesting film that really relies on the audience paying attention it only gives you absolutely the essential elements that you need to just kind of make it make sense thematically of what the story is because it doesn't really give you the resolution that i think is expected in a hollywood film it's a it's more of a thematic resolution in his character as he kind of settles into understanding that this isn't a country for me anymore i had this dream about my father um, about how he's waiting there with a fire for me when I get there. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the end. It's, it's like he's finally come to terms with this uh, sense of feeling lost in the world that he's in. Right, right. No, I absolutely, um, I, I think that's the thing that normally I would hate a movie like this, that it's <laughs> like this. You know, the pe- the two characters that we have come to really love, and interestingly, they're both killed off screen, uh, in spite of the fact that a lot of people are killed on screen. Uh, well, I should say, you know, enough to, to make you shudder. Um, yeah. The, um, so they're killed off screen, bad guy gets away, uh, mm-hmm. the the money is returned to the people who you know to the criminals um, and the the hero on the supposedly the hero on the white horse uh, goes ahead and hangs up his spurs yeah um, it, it, this is not uh, it, it, it makes you it's enough to make you wonder how the hell this got move this movie got made it is it really doesn't strike you as a Hollywood film it doesn't have that that sensibility that Hollywood is typically looking for in their films. And I think a lot of that is probably just because it's the Coen brothers. They have a certain um, ability to get a film made within a certain budget range that the uh, studios aren't going to uh, you know, bicker over. It's not like they're asking for $150 million to go out and make their films. This one, the budget was $25 million. And through that, they were able to tell a story um, and, and really stick with their own sensibilities of storytelling. And I think that shows, uh, you know, smarts on the, the studio side of things or the two studios sides of things. In this particular case, it was one of these 50-50 deals between Miramax and uh, Paramount Classics, I believe. And they... Um, uh, just smartly know how to tell a story and they ended up with a producer who trusted that you know he specifically i think it was uh, a scott rudin knew that these were filmmakers he could trust with the story he's the one who found the book in the first place mm-hmm. and brought it to them because he knew this was a story they could tell he obviously was you know smart enough to look at the book and say this book has the story in it already. We don't have to change the way that it's going to end. We present the ending as it is in the book because it's perfect. It it tells the story it needs to tell. Nothing excess. Mm. That's the that is certainly the sense that I that that um, I get from the adaptation. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the um, the cast. It's a brilliant cast from top to bottom. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones, I think, is 
we already said he's from this area. He feels like he's from this area. Everything about him says this is a man who really probably in his past life was a sheriff in West Texas in a small town. I mean, he just feels like this is who he is. And it's strange that he's an actor because this feels like more the role that Tommy Lee Jones should be playing in his life, <laughs> you know? And so I always find it amusing. And, you know, he did another film that I think is just beautiful called The Three Burials of Melchiades Estrada, which was a fantastic, fantastic film that he also directed back in 2005 that took, takes place along the border. And it, it just goes to show that these two films, he really understands the area. He knows how to tap into that world and depict it in a way that feels honest, play the roles in an honest way uh, that just feels like it's 100% authentic. And I think they were so smart in casting him in this film. I, uh, I think he is a perfect representation of this, this old man who is looking at this world that he just doesn't understand anymore. Yeah, you know, I, he's... I don't know what else to say about that I would add to uh, to that. Just that, you know, back to this idea, or to, the, to watching interviews with him about this movie, it, it, there, there is, there's, very, there's a very narrow gap between his character in this film and uh, Tommy Lee Jones, the man. I, I, he really, yeah. it's like, you might as well just leave the hat on uh, <laughs> exactly. all the time. No, uh, it's he's really quite good. I, I think it's interesting you started with Tommy Lee Jones because, and and you've said this before, you know that the titular character is Tommy Lee Jones, and yet he is he is, um, I I don't want to say underwhelming. You know that's not the word, but the understated character in this film. I mean, we spend so much of our time focused on, um, you know, on Moss and and Chigurh, uh, and it was uh, uh, Javier Bardem who won the Oscar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I purposely started with Tommy Lee Jones because I think those other two roles are so much more standout roles. They're the ones that you gravitate to. But I, for me, and, and don't get me wrong, I think those two, uh, Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem, and their two roles are stellar. I think they're just brilliant performers playing those two characters. But Tommy Lee Jones is the one who grounds the film and feels uh, he has kind of the the connection to that uh, like you were saying, we were talking about the landscape earlier. He feels like he's uh, kind of almost like the human representation of the landscape in this film. Right. And uh, so for me, I just, I don't know. I just felt like I needed to start with him. No, I'm glad you did. I mean, you're, you're, that was good. But you can tell where the where where the film strikes when you ask somebody, you know, uh, to kind of listen. You can always see, kind of get a, a perception of what they, of, of their worldview of the film uh, by who they start with. Right, because they, you yep. know, the lawman is is sort of that iconic uh, archetype, yeah. um, and uh, here we have Javier Bardem, who is the direct opposite, the direct counter, or the the um, uh, uh, to that, always wearing black, um, black hair with the page boy haircut. He doesn't uh, have a sense of humor. No. <laughs> <laughs> he does not have a sense of humor. Uh, he is a fantastic uh, sociopath. Yeah, and uh, he really just is, he's just so frightening in this film. One of my, actually, my wife's all time favorite uh, scene in film 
in, at least in recent film, is the scene where Javier Bardem is talking to the gas station attendant about the quarter and flipping the coin basically for his life. Right. It's it's one of the most frightening, uh, <laughs> not just because of the context of the scene, but the way that Javier plays that scene. It is so frightening, and he is so mysterious in a way that you can never really quite put a finger on him. And I think because of that, it really... Like he's got his crazy own sense of morals that just don't make sense to anyone else. And, you know, he, he's, and he's got a really bad haircut. I mean, he just is so good in this film. You know, what's, what I think is, um, the, the nuanced performance of, uh, Javier Bardem in this film is, you know, he's a, he's a hitman for the cartel, right? I mean, his job is not is to go out and kill people. Uh, but that he is, uh, he, he so deftly walks the line between being a, uh, a, a completely, um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, on, just completely composed, um, you know, a professional to coming completely unraveled at the very simplest of uh, uh, you know phrases, you know, I think you you bring up that the you know it's kind of a legendary scene, the the coin toss with, at the gas station, you know the, mm-hmm. um, um, you know I I guess that the best is for manners and your cracker view of things, you know. Well, I apologize, sir, if you don't want to accept that. I don't know what else I can do for you. And you watch him. Uh, begin to unravel. He can't. You you see his breathing change. You see his face get tight. You know, and yet it is the same. It's that same sort of amplitude that we see on his face as he's strangling the cop in the opening sequence right after his arrest. Right. You know, it is that he's just right at the edge and he doesn't quite go over it, but you know he's almost there. Yeah. Uh, that it's just that level of intensity that's. Uh, it is a it's a it's a wholly unique portrayal of of that that sort of character that I've ever seen. It is, and it's written that way in the book. He plays it that way, but he takes it to a level that even reading it, you wouldn't have kind of pictured it that way in your head. And it's just like everything about it feels so intentional, but still, you can't quite understand it. <laughs> it's just right, and it's right. so frightening because of that. Well, and that's, I think, for the same reason that, um, you know, that Moss's action does seem sort of unintentional until the very last minute of whatever he's doing. It's always just sort of at the very last minute. You're, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Bardem hits this as, as lockstep intentional. Like, he knows exactly what he's doing, when he's going to do it, everything he does. Uh, yep. and, uh, and that's a—it's just a beautiful performance. Yeah, frighteningly beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh and Moss. Josh Brolin I mean he is the one who we see most <laughs> just doing things. Mm-hmm. I mean he is constantly just doing things. He doesn't have as many lines as you would expect. He just is doing one thing and then he's doing another thing. And you know, Josh Brolin like Tommy Lee Jones and I I don't think he has the sort of Texas background that Tommy Lee Jones has, um, feels so right for this world. And, uh, and actually he was born in Santa Monica. So, you know, he definitely 
isn't quite the uh, the same sort of uh, doesn't have the same life that the Tommy Lee Jones grew up in. But there's something about Josh Brolin that feels like he grew up in this world. Watching him in that opening scene where he's hunting the pronghorn and then he's tracking the bloody the dying pronghorn and then he's just all of that stuff at the at when he's he's figuring out what happened at the crime scene out in the desert. All of that stuff, just everything about everything that he did in the film felt authentic. It felt like a man who grew up there. It, you know, sometimes you watch a, a film and it's like, he did a great performance, but I don't really buy into him as coming from that world. That's not this performance. No, I, no, it's really not. You know, I, I, I'm trying to find uh, when he did. So he did No Country for Old Men, and then he did... Uh, w after that 2008 i was trying to figure out which one actually gave me more of a sense of his texanism you know what i mean because hmm. i you know when i when i think of his role in no country for old men i immediately sort of instinctively think well you know he was he was george w bush <laughs> and that's <laughs> like all texas to me but th- that movie came after and so i'm i'm you know i'm misattributing that maybe maybe He's, it's planet terror <laughs> possibly uh but he's guy you know he's just an uh you know remember him from the goonies right i mean this oh, is yeah. a guy you feel like you've been uh you've been watching for an awful long time and um and and boy you're right he just feels like a piece of the landscape yeah uh in this film he's fantastic um the uh, I I don't want to go too far without talking about his uh, lovely bride. Um, yeah, Kelly McDonald, Kelly McDonald is such a striking uh, uh, change for her in this film because she's lost all of that that brogue that she yeah. has. <laughs> so she, you watch this film if you didn't know that she was from Scotland you would never suspect that she wasn't from Texas. She plays this so well. I am fooled every time I watch it that she is just somebody from West Texas. She brings that kind of white trashiness, uh, rural Southwest to this role, while also bringing this sense of the world that you don't really expect. And and her last scene with Shigur really brings that home for me when you really get a sense that this woman is more than you think she is. She understands everything that's going on and is just kind of like she's fed up with it. She's just not going to not going to play that game. And I think that's such an interesting change for what you'd normally expect in a role like this. She's, I, absolutely. And that is, I, I think when you look at, at the overall sort of uh, character arc of each of these characters, she's the one that I feel like, um, it, I don't necessarily feel like she grows or changes necessarily in this film, but our interpretation of her and what she represents certainly does. Uh, and, and I think the you know, when we first meet her, she's just watching TV in a double wide in this trailer park. And she's, you know, we don't, uh, I, I don't think, I certainly didn't have a very favorable impression of, of who she was and what she represented. You know, she's a, she's portraying a much younger wife, um, you know, this uh, sort of, uh, that, that um, you know Moss comes home and and essentially marries a child, um, and 
uh, and so you think of her as just sort of being the the kind of I don't know playing the sort of arm candy role a little bit. Yeah. And yet, when she has this conversation with Shigur at the end, and uh, has the and and calls him out on exactly how insane he really is. Yeah. Um, uh, it shows a level of sort of maturity and awareness that that you you don't expect, and yet totally makes sense. I was it didn't catch me off guard at all. It just felt like, um, you know, she she had been awakened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she's accepting. She's right. Very accepting of her fate, and she's she's really kind of finished. She's done. She's just like I'm not playing any games. And it's interesting, her role changes in the book because in the book she actually does panic and and pick uh, heads or tails. I can't remember. In the book, she does call it, and she calls it wrong. And of course, it it leads to her begging and pleading for her life, and. I think they made a, a a very smart choice the way that they changed it in the in the film. I find it more gratifying, and I think it works better the way that it plays because I think it also makes you reflect on Shigur and the nature of uh, this kind of consequence, destiny, whatever you want to call it. The way that you know this is where the coin was meant to end up this is how your life was meant to end like the way that he plays everything and and i mean you could even it's a really interesting reflection over the course of all the characters in the film i mean even the sheriff and how he was meant to kind of end up in you know where he ended up at the end of the film it, just this consequence and people you have to you do things in your life and you can't just forget that it was something that was done. Even if you pretend it never happened five years down the line, nobody knows, but you will always know. And, and so it's this interesting way that they look at themselves and they look at the world and the way that he plays everything and the way that he uh, pushes that to her and how this is where you were meant to be. This is where this coin was meant to end up. This is where I got here the same way the coin did. All of this almost kind of like this... Uh, destiny, the way that things had to end up where they were, and the way that she dismisses that and uh, looks at it straight on, saying, screw it, I don't buy into it, you're going to do it anyway, so just get it over with. I, I just find that so powerful, and I really enjoy that element of the film. You know, I, I did too. It's that last sequence when he when Shigur comes out and says, you know, I... Uh, she says, you, you got no cause to hurt me. And he says, no, but I gave my word. Yeah. Uh, you gave your word to your husband. Uh, well, I, what I like so much about that that uh, exchange is uh, that it, it really seems to tie, uh, to be a spiritual tie to some of these other uh, elements from uh, Miller's Crossing and, uh, uh, you know, that we've already talked about, Miller's Crossing and, and uh, Blood Simple, this idea of, of um, that there is an ethic uh, there's honesty and integrity that comes to this sort of criminal, uh, sociopathic, uh, you know, behavior. And he is, you know, in his own twisted way, uh, honoring his duty uh, to uh, his own path. And, yeah. and I find that, that wonderful. Uh, it, you know, and that, that that scene closes, you know, I know you were crazy when I saw you sitting there. I know exactly what was in store for me. Yeah, things fall into place. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's just brilliant. And then we don't see anything. He walks out the door and checks his shoes. I oh, know. It's just diabolical. But that speaks to how the Coens really play this film uh, for a smart audience. You really you don't need to see all the stuff they don't show you. They show you the things that you need to see that tells you it happened. And right. and same thing with Cormac McCarthy, the way he wrote it. I mean, it's very much the the same thing. Uh, even where the money ended up. I mean, we see uh, the sheriff walk into that last hotel room late at night when Shigur is hiding behind the door. He senses that he's there, but he looks down and he sees he sees the uh, the vent cover on the wall. It's been removed. We know as an audience that the money is now in Shigura's hands and Shigura's found it and he has it and he's able to return it now. We don't need to show all of that. We don't need to, we've, we don't need to see him removing it. It's all just done off screen, but we're a smart audience. We see the, the, the clues that they give us to know what's going on. Enormous uh, filmmaking risk for today's audience to treat, yeah. uh, to treat an audience with such, uh, I think, respect. And yet really paid off, nominated for eight Academy Awards, won four, um, otherwise extremely well-received, this film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And, and that's just the Oscars. I mean, just BAFTAs. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's nominated. it was nominated for just everything. I mean, Kelly McDonald was nominated for uh, a supporting actress BAFTA for this film. I mean, everybody really respected what they did with this film. They respected the storytelling. I think they did a great job, so... So who else? Woody Harrelson is great coming in as as this other bounty hunter. Great little scene or great little a, great little character. He does. He has a bit, and he's he is great. He finds the money for crying out loud. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's how things would have been different. Uh, the other uh, the other one that I just love, uh, Stephen Root. Yeah, Stephen Root. I love seeing Stephen Root, and I think he gets the best death. Talk about things happening uh, off camera. Boy, do we get his right in the face. Yeah, that's just a gruesome one. Gruesome, gruesome. I love Garrett Dillahunt as uh, as Deputy Wendell, um, Bell's inexperienced uh, helper who's kind of helping him out. He's just so fun to see in everything. I've just been enjoying him since uh, I can't remember what. I think this might be one of the first things I saw him in. Um, but, boy, he's been around a lot now. Talk about he's, another Fargo parallel, though. You get the sheriff and the deputy sheriff. That's kind of dopey. Yeah. Uh, anyhow. And Dillahunt also, uh, I think he may be the only character. I could be wrong on this, but I think he's the only, I shouldn't say character. He's the only actor I know of who's been in more than one of the Cormac McCarthy adaptations. He also was in The Road, which I really enjoy as an adaptation. And I think Billy Bob Thornton's knees should be broken for the adaptation he did of All the Pretty Horses, which is just an abomination. I didn't, I didn't actually see that. Read the book, never watch the film. <laughs> okay, okay. It was just, oh. On, he, on your recommendation. He apparently missed every point the book was trying to make. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Tess Harper, I think, is wonderfully... Uh, simple in her role as Sheriff Bell's wife. There's not a lot to the role. It it seems like it's one of those roles that that uh, might be underutilized, or uh, you're not giving the actor enough to do. But what Tess Harper brings to the film, I think, is just 
it, it almost feels like she's bringing a sense of wisdom to the film that underplays every scene that she's in. It's just this honesty to their relationship that I think uh, is in all of the simple little, you know, two or three lines that they share with each other. And I, I really love her in the film. Totally agree. And I, you know, I've, I, she was in Tender Mercies in 83. Mm-hmm. I loved that film. It's such a great movie. Uh, she's been, she's a very busy woman. She is a very busy woman. She's speaking of Breaking Bad. She was in that. Right, right. Um, I'm, I'm looking for another, uh, ah, here it is. Uh, Beth Grant. Gotta bring yes. up Beth Grant. Uh, she plays, she is a wonderful character actress. Mm-hmm. And she is she plays an incredibly great kind of hillbilly uh, matron, mm-hmm. and she plays it a lot. <laughs> yes, she does. She plays it on television. She plays it in film. She is all over the place. Uh, and you look at her uh, filmography. She's got 169 credits to her. She she was actually you know I do this Chautauqua thing every year, and right. and she was a um, she was one of the speakers um, last year. She came and and hit the Chautauqua stage, and she was just fantastic. Uh, oh, cool. And uh, she's uh, nothing like this character. She was only in here briefly. She's she's well. She ends up in the ground. Yes, she does. Interestingly, in the book, uh, we learn that she is actually uh, Carla Jean's grandmother and that her mother is, I I don't remember what happened to her mother, but she's gone and her grandmother essentially raised her and so she's always called her mama. So Mm -hmm. that's probably why she has gray hair, uh, that gray She is made really quite old. Yeah, she looks. She she is great in her little role, right. and you know I gotta say Barry Corbin as uh, Tommy Lee Jones's uncle in this film. Oh yeah, his one scene is uh, one of those few powerful scenes in this film. That's just it's all about the context of what they're saying and the conversation he has with uh, with Sheriff Bell really struck me as this is a key moment where we're learning a lot about the characters and their states of mind and why he should retire and why he should uh, change his way of thinking and not be concerned about sticking it out to the end. I love his scene in this. It's very simple. I love the look they gave him in his little trailer with all his cats and everything. Mm-hmm. It's, he's so great in this. And it's, it's just so different from seeing him in something like War Games, which is, I think, probably the thing that I best have him burned into my mind as. I oh. loved him in War Games. Well, he was great, but really, I mean, come on, man. Northern Exposure. Well, see, I never saw that show, so I can't <gasps> say. I know. <sighs> so for me, it's War Games and nothing in common. Those, that's, that's, that's what you. I... I know. I mean, it's fine. It was he, he just really is. I mean, he's a, he's another one of those fantastic character actors. And I, I think, you know, what I, I love so much about the choices that they made for him uh, that he, you know, we learn some incredibly powerful things about, uh, you know, particularly about Ed's character in the very last sequence of the film. Yeah. As a result of this exchange with uh, with Barry Corbin, with his uncle. Uh, and and so uh, you know, I mean, he he's a he's a pivotal role in the last three minutes, uh, and it's uh, it's fantastic. He's great. Yeah, I feel the same way about him that I do with Stephen Root. I feel like they're on the the list. 
guys that I would just, you know, they would probably like me a lot if they knew me. The best friends who haven't right. met us list. Right. Yeah. We haven't added anybody to that list for a while. So well, we, we need should. to, we need to skew the, uh, skew the demographic uh, range of that list up a little bit. So I think Barry Corbin and Stephen Root. Yeah, I would I would put Tommy Lee Jones on the list. I don't think I don't, he would. I don't think he'd ever. I don't think he would ever ever, ever reciprocate ever. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't Josh think Brolin. So. I think Josh Brolin would. Javier Bardem. You think that would be? I think he probably would, but it'd be kind of a right. creepy ad. I would scare him. I'd be scared of him a little bit. <laughs> I would Kelly scare Mc, him. I would scare oh. him. Yeah, Kelly McDonald should totally be only if if for no other reason than right. than my daughter could talk about Brave with her. <laughs> <laughs> so good uh what uh, else do you have to say before we talk numbers and stuff um just uh speaking to the the nature of uh that we've brought up in shows past the whole idea of the MacGuffin that hitchcock had i think the whole idea of this this uh, money that everybody is chasing in this film it's it becomes not a film about this two million dollars that Moss has and that everyone else is trying to get, but it's about these characters and it's a great use of the MacGuffin that it doesn't really matter that these guys are chasing that. It's just the the characters. And so that idea of the MacGuffin, I, I felt is something that we should mention. I'm glad you did. Well executed here. Also, I uh, think that we should mention, we've talked about Carter Burwell a little bit and his wonderful music that he's been uh, bringing to all these Coen Brothers films. And I find it very... Uh, interesting and smart on the Cohen's part to make the decision, which sounds like it was a little bit of a tough decision, but they, I think it was the right decision to make music, to just leave it very minimal. It sounds like there was only about 16 minutes total in the two hour and two minute film. And a big chunk of that was actually in the credits, the end credits. And it was very smart of them to leave most of the music out because it really again leaves you with this stark landscape that you're in and even when there is music it's nothing that you could walk away humming or anything like that it's very uh, just kind of that minimalist sound uh, just kind of the layers that they have that just kind of drive a couple of the scenes it's very different for what Carter Burwell has done in all the other films that we've talked about but I find it incredibly effective in this film totally agree and it's a little a little uh, cinematic vacation for him yes yes just a little bit yep all right they uh this movie i think you already said it uh made it for 25 million dollars mm-hmm. it that was made for 25 million uh it had a prints and advertising budget of 45 million which I found really interesting that it was almost twice the budget of the film. Right. So all told, it was about $70 million went into the, uh, the overall cost of this film. Um, but it did well. Domestically, it made just under $75 million. Internationally, almost $100 million. So all told, about $172 million is about what it made. And uh, that's uh, you know going to my adjusted for inflation scale. That puts the film at uh, coming in at number 29 on our list of all of our films that we've talked about. Um, overall, the adjusted total gross it made was $190 million, and uh, adjusted profit per finished minute was about $924,000. So Not it did, bad. did pretty well for itself, yeah. 
I I think this is still this is the top performing Coen Brothers film. Is that is that accurate? That is not accurate. Oh, um, no, True it's Grit. Not ac- True Grit. True right. Grit beat it out. Another uh, Western. Interesting. Yeah, and this is you know that's an interesting comment because it's interesting that some people do you call this a Western? Is it? It takes place in the West. I don't know if I'd call this a Western. I think I would call this a thriller. It definitely has Western elements going on in it, but I don't know if I would call it a Western. If it's okay to say neo-noir, then I'm going to call this a neo-Western. Well, I, I think other people have, so I'll let oh, you. Oh, dang it. I know. Sorry. You're not You're not a unique snowflake. <laughs> My mama lied to me. <laughs> I, uh, I, I really, it, it, uh, boy, I, it, I guess we, we could get into a discussion of what makes a Western a Western, but this one, uh, you know, even though, it, even as a contemporary, um, film, not that contemporary, 1980, set in 1980, is, is, um, uh, it, it, to me, it just really reeks of the, of the sentiment of the West, uh, and, I think is celebrated appropriately so for me. Yeah. So it no, I, it has Western elements going on through it. I completely agree with that. I, I think it's definitely much more of a crime thriller, but you're right. It really does stick with some interesting Western sensibilities. Mm-hmm. But as we've talked about throughout our series, the Coen brothers are people who kind of take a genre and bend it a little bit. They right. do different things with the genre that you're not really expecting. And uh, I guess as the end of our series, uh, as we come to a close on our drama of the Brothers Cohen series, it is interesting to look back and say, yes, they really do like to play with genre conventions. They, uh, that is something that they really like to explore. They, um, they do seem to stick with kind of crime stories or these wacky comedies um, or kind of doing some crazy art stuff. But there, there always is that challenge that they seem to put upon themselves to do something a little outside of what your expectations would be for the genre. Yes, yeah, I, I yeah, I think that's ex- that's a that, that's an astute observation. Yeah. Uh, this has been a uh, it has been a real treat. I think for for me particularly because I I don't um, my memory of the Coen Brothers films is. Uh, it's always in discrete chunks, right? I, I remember the Coen Brothers films as individual entities, and I, I think it's to, to really be able to sit back and evaluate um, each of, uh, to evaluate these films together uh, as, a, as a unit, uh, you know, it's, it's given me a new appreciation for the, the um, sort of collected sense of tone and, and voice that these guys have. Yeah. Uh, and and really that sort of ideological worldview that they tend to celebrate again and again and again, um, they have a unique gift at, at really bringing out uh, 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 the often unseen characteristics of the underdog um, in in a way that that can turn them into an an interesting uh, hero. Yeah, this is and- fun. And damn if they don't cast great faces. Oh man, that is a that is an amazing skill of these guys collectively yeah. being able to do some just rocking casting. Yeah, from everyone from Javier and Tommy 
and Josh to the lady who runs the uh, the motor park where Llewellyn yeah. and Carla Jean live. I just love the faces in this film. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. One last little note before we flick chart it. Do it. These guys were the fifth uh, directors to win three Oscars in one night. They, of course, Joel and Ethan won three for uh, the screenwriters, the adapting the screenplay for this film, for directing the film, and for producing this film. Uh, before them, you have 2003 Peter Jackson winning the three awards for Lord of the Rings Return of the King as producer, director, screenwriter. James Cameron in 97 winning for Titanic for producer, director, and editor. Francis Ford Coppola in 74, winning for The Godfather Part II as producer, director, screenwriter. Um, 83, James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment as producer, director, screenwriter. And back all the way to 1960, Billy Wilder for The Apartment for producer, director, screenwriter. The only other person who's won three that I could find uh, the same night was the composer Marvin Hamlish for, in 1973, he did the score for The Way We Were, the song The Way We Were, and they had an interesting category, which is I think the only reason he managed to win this, was Adapted Score, which was for The Sting. <laughs> and then, and there's only, from what I could find, only one person who's actually won more than, th- more than three Oscars in one night, and that was Walt Disney, who won four Oscars in one night, and that was 1954. He won uh, Best Short Subject Too Real for Bear Country, Best Short Subject Cartoon for Toot Whistle, Plunk and Boom, Best Documentary Short Subject for The Alaskan Eskimo, and Best Documentary Feature for The Living Desert. Well, you know, well, when you slap your name on everything. Yeah. He, that man, <laughs> won 22 Oscars over the course Unreal. of his life. Hey, have you, have you, speaking of Walt Disney, did you catch the trailer for Escape from Tomorrow? Oh, yes. Yeah, okay, I, we'll, we'll talk about I'm, that again. Yes, we will. I'm very curious how they're managing to actually release that film. Right. Me too. <laughs> yeah. I really want to know the story. I want to know. Um, All right. Let's flick chart it. You can hey. find us over at flickchart.com slash the next reel. Check us out there. That's where you find the golden list. Uh, of all of our favorite films. And you know what? This is 99 of the shows that we've done, uh, of the, the next real shows. Uh, uh, obviously, we throw in the film board over there, and so I think we're up to, what, 112? This, this, this will be 108. Oh, 108, 108. right. Yeah. We had some overlap. But yeah. uh, this is the big 99 of uh, our uh, modest our, little production here. A regular show. And, you know, this is my favorite Coen Brothers film, so it's likely that this is going to be shooting up to, toward the top for me. So. All right. All right, No Country for Old Men or Inside Man? It's totally No Country for yeah, Old Men. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be No Country. <laughs> Not even a question for that one. No Country for Old Men or The Social Network? Ooh, there's an interesting yeah, one. Yeah, see, for me, that's going to be The Social Network. See, for me, it'd be No Country for Old Men. And I I, I have to, I mean, everything how, we've how talked about tonight. Is it's, it, I mean, really, it, really? Like, am I going to yeah, be totally. giving up? And it could be you know when it, it's no country for old men against moon, <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna call in a chip. Yeah, you uh, boy moon really just was suffering for a while. There, <laughs> the, the middle of our list always the first thing that we have to rank it against. I'll I'll give you no country. I I do I I do quite like this film, so I'll I'll give you that. Uh, no country for old men or John Carpenter's The Thing. No country for old men. Yeah, I mean I love The Thing, but. 
No Country for Old Men or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, I'm delighted to hear this. What? what please tell me. I'm I'm still No Country for Old Men. Really? Yeah. You're kind I, of a hooligan for Spotless Mind. I am. I really am. But this film really just strikes a chord in me. Oh, man. Okay. I see where this is going. Now we're now this is tricky though. No country for old men or alien. Alien. I uh I am gonna have to go with alien. No country Oof. for old men or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, I have to. It's no country for old men or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Butch Kid. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I have to say I'm a little torn on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I will go with Butch Cassidy. All right. Although I, I feel a little guilty, but I am going to go. No country is not listening. <laughs> it is now number seven. Oh, not flick. bad. Not bad. Broke into the top ten pretty easily. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Uh, and, yeah, that feels I think about right. There, I think it definitely deserves to be there. Are we going to talk about where we're going next week? I don't know. Should we? Our big 100. The big 100. It's pretty exciting. I'm pretty excited about it. I'm this very excited. I feel, I, I feel like, uh, I, I, I don't know, I worry that we're not going to appropriately celebrate. Like we should, I don't know, have horns, a, have some jig? sort of horn, some sort of horn celebration. A horn carrying the fire? Where, <laughs> yes. And then there we'll will be fire out. and, and <laughs> so other pyrotechnics. Yes. Uh, I think we should. I, we are doing uh, this. Is, uh, we have been looking forward to this for a long time. Yes, we have. Uh, it's, and I think it's fitting that it's number 100. I don't is, know why, is, but I think it's great. I do too. It, it is, it's sort of manufactured luck. Uh, that this film would come out would, would, completely uh, luck. This, it is still it, it's luck that it's still in theaters even though it's been out for a little while we are doing the third and final in the three flavors cornetto trilogy the world's end uh from edgar wright and simon Pegg and nick frost and, and company and i can't wait to talk about this film talk about a film that has struck a chord with me i uh, I, I like it more now than when I first saw it. So I'm, I'm very much uh, looking forward to talking to you about it. I've seen it three times, and I'm hoping to see it one more before we talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am a little goofy for the film. It's, I know. It's how did the, how did the, I didn't see that coming. I, it's, I'm, <laughs> more, I, I'm, sur- I'm going to go ahead and say it out loud. I'm more goofy for this film than I was for uh, Hot Fuzz. Um, I'm pretty torn on Shaun of the Dead. I, you know, Hot Fuzz has always been kind of my favorite. I think it's just such an easy one to go watch. We'll talk about more of this. I, I, I know, I know. I, I, I just, I love them all. They're all just fantastic. They're fantastic. Uh, so we're, we're hitting that next week. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And um, I think uh, I'm going to go to bed. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. 
The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.